This podcast was recorded before a live telephone audience. This is Open Line with Michelle Naranjo, Chelsea Sexton, and Aaron Bragman. Episode 6 for November 2011. What happens at SEMA stays at SEMA. You can watch and participate live on the first Tuesday of every month at autoline.tv. Open Line starts at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. Join in on the call anytime by dialing 1712-432-0900 and enter PIN 911-633. So everyone, welcome to Open Line. This is our monthly automotive get-together. I'm Michelle Naranjo from autobytel.com, and I'm joined by Chelsea Sexton from chelseasexton.com and Aaron Bragman, our analyst extraordinaire from IHS. We do this the first Tuesday of every month at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, until everyone is tired of talking. If you want to join the conference call and ask a question, you can call 712-432-0900, PIN number 911 don't forget you to ask a question. You have to dial star six. You can also find us streaming live at bit.ly forward slash open line. There's a chat room there. You're welcome to ask questions there, and we'll read them to our guests. And we're going to jump right in this week with John Kraftcheck, CEO of North American Hyundai. He has, I think he's on his way out of Las Vegas. We are, um, I'm actually in Las Vegas right now as well. We're, uh, we've been at SEMA all day. And hey, John, like you've had some great news to announce today at SEMA, didn't you? I tell you. Um, yeah, Michelle, it was good. And uh, hello to Chelsea and Aaron. We, um, we, we had a great show. We had about 10 different Velocers uh, spread across the SEMA floor, uh, several of them in our booth, and a couple of really cool 450-horsepower uh, Genesis Coupes, one V8-flavored and one V6-supercharged-flavored. So you could choose uh, the number of cylinders for your 450-horsepower. That sounds like a heck of a lot of fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And, you know, the, the big announcement for us was, um, and, and we had some fun with this, honestly, on the way to the announcement last night, and, and we shared the, the news at dinner with some journalists um, uh, at that time last night, and then at the show this morning, was um, that we're going to go forward with a turbocharged version of Veloster. And um, that, that got a lot of... Um, I think a, a lot of good marks and we had seriously thought long and hard about this at, at Hyundai Motor America because, you know, Genesis coupe is a, is a true performance car and it's rear wheel drive and we have the two liter turbo in there. And, and there was a lot of back and forth internally as to whether or not it made sense to, you know, keep Veloster focused in, in what we call the eco sport mode, which I think is going to be a growing subsegment of, of small specialty cars um, and let Genesis coupe carry the banner as um, our, our, our true performance coupe. And in the end, um, you know, we, we performance guys went out and said, you know what, two turbos are better than just one. Let's go for it. That's fantastic. That's really cool to hear that. This is We're talking about a smaller engine, though, than the one that's in the Genesis. It's not the 2.0 liter, is it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to have some pretty wicked power density. It's a 1.6 liter, um, which is the standard engine right now, uh, direct injected. And we add a, a turbo and, and some other details, which, which we're not quite ready to share yet, to get the horsepower to a number that we're also not quite ready to share yet. There, there are other installations of this car where we've had other public horsepower announcements, but um, we're not quite finished with, with what we're doing on Velocity. But it's going to be fun, and I can't wait to tell the world about it at the Detroit Auto Show in January. That is pretty exciting. Are they going to have 
offering both kinds of transmissions with it, or will it only be an automatic or the manual or the, uh, the, the direct shift? You know, that that is also something I want to keep under wraps because we're doing something a little bit different on the transmission side, too. Ah, so that's one where I, I like to say stay tuned for details. Very cool. Very cool. And, of course, pricing is, is nowhere near ready to be announced, I'm sure. But are you looking at – there, are there any competitors that we should look at in terms of, of who you could point to and say that's really who we want to target in terms of price? You know, the, I mean, the, the whole thing with, with Veloster, um, and I think you guys, again, I think a lot of folks get it, is that car doesn't have a lot of clear and direct competition. The, the mm -hmm. closest thing we point to is the Scion PC, but it's, I mean, that car is so much heavier. It's 400 pounds heavier. Um, you know, it has less interior space. It doesn't have, um, it, it's got a very, very different feel. It's a great car. I like what Toyota and Scion did with the new TC. Uh, but the Veloster is, is, is something different. And it's one of the first cars, I think, we can truly and proudly say that could only be a Hyundai. Like, no one else could do that car. It doesn't look like anything else. You know, the door configuration, everything about it, it's got this iconoclastic feel going for it that, uh, that, that makes us all really, really proud in Orange County. Mm. Now, we've, we've heard rumors that uh, there's a U.K. market four-door version of Veloster that uh, is being prepared because it's obviously right-hand drive. In there, there might have been some thought I'd heard uh, floating around the internets about bringing a, a four-door version of the thing over here as well. Yeah, I don't know where that comes from. I think it's just silly people making silly speculation <laughs> because it's fun. But well, we, um, we are going to do. Could, could that also be the the? There's something been spied going around in Detroit lately, which is a four-door with a hatch that I believe is probably the. Um, the new Sonata wagon or something that's sold in Europe. Yeah, we definitely had our um, what we call the I-40, which is, you know, it's 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 just between Elantra and Sonata in our lineup, and there's a fabulous estate version of that car that is doing very very well in Europe, where we 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 always do testing um, for a lot of our international products in in the U.S. for various reasons. There's some calibration activities we do here, um, and and just some of our weather is perfect no matter which market. So sometimes we'll be testing. European only spec vehicles in the U.S. and I think that's what that was that that I-40 estate. Um, but going back to the um, the Veloster and the three door, one of the things we decided to do is, is a decision was for right hand drive markets we did engineer um, a different body in white so that the extra door, the bonus door, is always on the passenger side of the vehicle. I mean there have there have been other manufacturers with three doors. Um, but they didn't engineer two bodies in white. Um, we, we made the expense to go ahead and do that. So right-hand drive markets get a, a bonus store on the passenger side. Left-hand drive uh, markets get a bonus store on the passenger side. And that's how we think about that door as a bonus door, because I know a lot of people say, well, why don't you just put a, a fourth door on it? But but then it's a four-door, and, and, and it lacks the uniqueness. And one of the things that we've tried hard to communicate, and I don't know if you guys will give me this one or not, but bear me out. Um, the interior of every automobile ever made, just about with a few exceptions, for example, the McLaren F1, are not symmetrical bilaterally, right? The right side is different from the left side. Um, in our left-hand drive markets, the driver is always on the left-hand side of the car, right? And the, and the passenger um, is on the right. And usually you want the, the backseat passenger to get on the right-hand side of the vehicle. And Veloster is one of the first cars that recognizes this and delivers a door configuration that's really useful. It doesn't have the goofy suicide doors, which everyone hates after they've purchased the car for a week. They realize what a, what a foolish decision they made buying a car with suicide doors, because you have to open the front door 
to open up the rear door. It ends up being such a hassle. Um, so Veloster is the first car, really, in, in volume that, you know, takes that approach and kind of delivers the asymmetry of the interior of the car to the exterior. I, I think it's kind of cool. And based on the response we're getting um, from the market, we sold over 3,700 in October. It was our first full month. Um, people are really digging this car. Um, and it's, it's people of all age groups, all demographics. They appreciate that door as what it is. It's, it's an extra way to get into the backseat. Um, we, we like to say that um, because it's a pretty small backseat, I have to be honest, it's a very small car. It's just 166 inches long. Uh, but we like to say that um, if you can't get through the rear door, you probably don't belong in the backseat of a Veloster. Does that make sense? Maybe that's a little naughty. I don't know. Yeah. No, that makes sense to me. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny. There's some people in the chat room, there's, um, especially DC Auto Geek, is saying that he's sort of reviewed Hello, a lot DC of. DC Auto Geek. I see DC Auto Geek all the time. He he's awesome. He my Twitter feed. He, um, he said he did some research on Veloster owners, and he's seeing a lot of conversions from one of two places. They're either Mazda or Honda, I mean Hyundai. And I have to say, you know, um, I always said I wanted an, an RX-8, but um, I didn't want to have to replace an engine after 50,000 miles. Yeah. <laughs> so the Veloster is what, like that third door, like makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, thanks. You know, and um, yeah, we're definitely seeing a lot of Mazda conversion, and, and it makes sense that a car like that one, I think, would appeal to uh, folks who had previously owned a Mazda. We'll have our first set of really complete uh, source of sales data soon, um, just to see how that's, how that's going. But, um, you know, so far, I mean, it's, it's just going gangbusters in, in what we call the small uh, specialty segment. It's the best-selling car already um, in that segment, um, doing very well against cars like the uh, uh, the TC and uh, and the Mini. Um, we'll see that. You could, I suppose, make a case that the that the new new Beetle, now just called the Beetle, is is a part of that segment. I'm not sure. Mm. And uh, and even the Fiat Cinquecento. Um, it's an interesting it's an interesting point of view on how you would categorize it. But um so far so good and um my big concern, my big worry going forward is are we gonna be able to meet demand for um this car, you know, in the months ahead because mm. um and it, it, it seems to be that the the same constant refrain that we've had uh from our dealers and consumers with a lot of the new stuff that we've been launching. Um, it's a good problem to have, but you know, in, in some fashion it ends up being very frustrating because you never know how high is up. Well, I just want to remind everybody, if you want to call in and ask a question, um, you can. You need to dial star six, and then we'll, we will put you through to ask a question, or you can ask a question in the chat room. I mean, I have a question. So what does this do in terms of that overall goal of meeting the 40 miles per hour, I mean, miles per gallon on so many of the cars now? Yeah, it's a huge help for us. Um, so Veloster comes standard with a 40 MPG highway level. I think the city is 28. And with the DCT, the city label is better, but the highway level uh, label is a little bit worse. I think the combined is about the same. Um, so they, they both end up, um, from memory, 31, 32 um, combined. And when you convert that real world, that's kind of EPA real world fuel economy number that's on the label, when you convert it to the NHTSA CAFE standard, uh, the numbers go up substantially. And so that car delivers for us in CAFE terms 
about 42 miles per gallon in cafe terms. Um, so it really helps us on the way to um, getting to our self-imposed target of 50 MPG by 2025. Um, you know, the folks in D.C., um, along with CARB, are working hard to figure out what our standard will be uh, for 2025. The kind of where it is right now is at 54.5 miles per gallon. Um, and, and we'll see where it ends up. I mean, there's lots of discussion still ongoing with a lot of the rulemaking that's going on. And, you know, I don't know where the government standard will be. Um, I do know that we're going to remain committed, no matter where that standard is, to hitting at least 50 by 2025. And I think, um, you know, we're reporting now our our corporate average fuel economy results and our adjusted fuel economy results with our sales reports. And um, I believe so far this year we're running about 37 uh, miles per gallon year to date, which is really good. That's that's pretty incredible. So in terms of let's see, let's talk about some of the cars that that you guys have out there at SEMA right now. I mean, of course, there is the great great Reese Mellon like race car. That thing is amazingly beautiful. I would I would love to talk about that one, Michelle. And then I got to ask you a question um, about sound systems, but we'll come come to that in a minute. <laughs> I, I can I talk about sound systems, tour. man. I, I know now. <laughs> gave you the personal tour. Uh, but so we um, – it, it, this still, I think, remains hard for people, even industry folks, to understand. But the Genesis and the Genesis Coupe really share a remarkable level of under-the-skin commonality. I mean, almost the exact same floor pan, um, the transmission tunnel, the um, the cowl, or what's also known as the firewall, uh, the front engine, the front engine subframe, uh, completely common between the two cars. So, and, and we always knew this, and we always knew that it would be very easy to install uh, the Tau V8 engine from the Genesis sedan into the Genesis Coupe. So we had Reese Millen, who is uh, one of our racing and rally partners, uh, a drift partner and a good friend, uh, built the car for us for SEMA. And uh, I was chatting with him on the taxi ride in. Uh, to the show just yesterday, and Reese was, you know, just so surprised at how easy everything was. I mean, almost everything just dropped right in. Um, and the, the Tau V8, much, much bigger engine than our V6, even fits under the hood without any change to the hood. I mean, it was a breeze of an installation. So it, that that is something within the realm of possibility, and, the, you know, the, the question is, do we want to go there? There are a lot of fun reasons to go ahead and do it. Um, but there are a lot of other reasons that make us pause a little bit. So one of the things we wanted to do with this car at SEMA was to see, honestly see uh, what people had to say about that possibility. Because we, we've got other things coming, too. I mean, we, we have the, the higher horsepower uh, 3.8-liter V6 with direct injection coming from the Genesis sedan. We're going to announce that at the, at the Detroit Auto Show, um, and that's going to have a horsepower rating that gets pretty darn close to, to what we could do with a V8. And so then, then you ask the question, well, you know, how, how far do you go and you really want this V8 engine in your coupe or not? I don't know. I don't know what you guys think. What do, what do you guys think? Should we go ahead and do something like that or do you think it's a little bit too much? It sets up some interesting fights between uh, Genesis and Mustang, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting. Two 5.0s going at it, you know? Exactly. Um, I think the horsepower ratings are uh, are remarkably similar to, uh, I, I think they're right around the 429 where, uh, where we are with our Tau V8. Um, so you just, yeah, you just wrote the next Fast and Furious movie, I think. Right. I mean, <laughs> does that mean we have a we'd have a Korean pony car? Yeah. <laughs> it could be. Well, we'd like to think there's already a Korean pony car, but but it's a V6, right? But <laughs> how do we say pony car in Korean? Oh, <laughs> uh, we might have the word kimchi in it, I think. But uh, oh, <laughs> so 
I, so, I demoed for Michelle uh, today on the SEMA show floor um, a really special, you know, production level readiness lexicon audio system. We have we have a lexicon system in the Genesis sedan, and our good friends at Harman were were showing us what lexicon could sound like in Genesis Coupe. So they put together an equivalent system. Um, four hundred. No, I'm sorry. It was eight. I'm sorry. Eight hundred and twenty-five watts. Eight hundred and twenty-five watts. That's a lot of watts. That's like three extra horsepower. That's like adding three yeah. horsepower. You know? um, absolutely astonishing sound. And um, and so we were spinning Adele, and uh, at at maximum volume, and she sounded absolutely perfect. She. It was like she was in the car with us, wasn't it, Michelle? I mean, it was it was astonishing. It's incredible. And what was what was so there were fourteen speakers, right? And yes. there was like the mid range, and then the little tweeters, and then it, it was. I when I first got in the car, I didn't notice that anything was done differently. It was um, very subtle. It, it you know there wasn't like a huge old beatbox in the back end. Yeah, <laughs> right. The, the only thing that kind of gave it away at all for me was the the mid range speakers in the corners of the IP top. You know, um, but everything else was just factory stock looking, and uh, the sound was incredible. Um, the folks wow. at Harman do do amazing things. Um, so, and that's, you know, that's, that's a real trend we see in the industry, you know, more and more people are carrying their music with them on their, um, iPhones and iPods and the like. Um, but when they're in their car, they want the full audio experience and, and they're willing to pay for it. And, and when you think about it, a car is like the perfect rolling sound system. You know, it's, it's a small defined space. You can, you can tune things to absolute perfection and, and often get better sound, uh, inside your automobile than you would in, uh, in your own living room at home. So. Uh, that's certainly something we're looking at for Genesis Coupe. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, well, everything down to you can plug your Xbox into the Veloster, right? There's um, a lot of different Do we know? options. Yeah, Veloster comes standard with Xbox capability. We supply the uh, the RCA cable, um, comes standard with the 7-inch um, screen. Of course, it doesn't work when you're driving, um, but... Yeah, yeah. This and this is this is one of the things we're coming to, and one of these big industry trends that that you read an awful lot about. Um, younger people today seem less interested in automobiles than um, than folks just a few years back, and I think it's incumbent on us in the industry to figure out why, and to make the cars so incredibly entertaining that um, you know it, it gets them to move away from their their cell phones and PDAs and iPhones and actually want to get in and have a physical experience driving a car. Um, I was pleased to see someone who who purchased a Veloster call it, um, and they tweeted us the the perfect rolling smartphone. And I thought, yeah, it's great. I'll take it. That's awesome. <laughs> we have a question from the chat room, curious about what the future holds for Equus in the United States. Is it how many have you uh, have you sold so far, and how's that going? Kind of an experiment, isn't it? Yeah, well, it has been. It's been a big experiment for us, um, and it's gosh, it's been doing absolutely great. We we had hoped to sell two thousand this year um, in our first year, and I think we broke through two thousand in September. Um, we'll deliver about 3,000 this year. So we exceed our sales target by about 50%. And what, you know, that number may not mean a lot to you and to the listeners, but 
Um, another way to think about it is market share of that segment, which is the most premium segment in the industry, the, kind of the premium flagship sedan segment, where the Mercedes-Benz S-Class, BMW 7 Series, Audi A8, the Lexus LS, all of these vehicles reside. And the Equus is pulling a 5% segment share um, in that segment, which, which is very similar to the Hyundai brand. The whole Hyundai brand in the U.S. industry runs 5 to 6%. And, you know, I like to look at it in that way because, you know, it, it makes sense to people that Hyundai can have success in segments like compact cars and mid-sized cars with Sonatas and, you know, uh, crossovers like Tucson and Santa Fe. And they get that. Um, but for us to deliver that same level of success in, in a premium segment where the average transaction price is about $80,000 $80, is something else entirely, you know. And, and the fact that Equus is in there slugging it out with those heavyweights and holding its own is, is pretty good. Uh, especially since we took the big gamble and did it without a premium standalone luxury yeah. set of dealerships. You know? Well, I remember you saying when you uh, actually came over to uh, to Hachi here in Ann Arbor uh, during the uh, the Accent Drive that we were that we were on about how yeah. Hyundai is Hyundai is, is basically regarded in in many ways uh, similar to just like the, the fourth or fifth brand just beyond the luxury brands or something like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're referring to the um, the American Express. Um, yes, that's black right. The American car, Express the Centurion black car. That blew us away. You yeah. know that. Um. And and I I think the number this is from recollection was six percent of black card owners have a Hyundai in their garage. Um, American, it was, American yeah, Express among, black card. We, yeah. we should tell everybody that basically there was a study done by American Express Black, which is the super exclusive credit card that you have to be basically invited to to join. Um, and they did a study of, you know, what do these black card owners drive? And, and as you had presented, uh, Hyundai actually ranks up there very highly. Yeah, we're among, uh, I think, top seven, eight brands, something like that, yeah. among black card owners and uh, tied with Bentley and Audi, as I recall, which is which is pretty good company to keep. And these are folks with, you know, massive uh, household income and assets, definitely the top um, 1%, probably top 0.1, uh, 0.01% of uh of Americans in terms of wealth and, uh, and income. So for Hyundai to be in that, in that group is pretty cool. And as we dove a little bit deeper into the data, a lot of it was Genesis. Uh, the, the survey was too, um, too soon for Equus. But when you think about it, it makes sense. Um, a lot of these people who are successful at accumulating wealth and assets do it because they find the best product and, and they're smart shoppers and they, they love to feel smart about what they've purchased. And they don't need the social, because they're very confident in their economic um, situation, they don't need the social validation of owning a premium brand. In fact, they, they often choose just the opposite. They, they prefer to make a choice that's perceived as smart and maybe a little bit unusual, and, and that better fits their psyche and where they're coming from. This isn't true of all very wealthy people, but we find it's true of a, of a significant percentage of them that they don't want to be ostentatious. They want to they want to make a choice that just reflects their good taste, not their striving for some kind of social recognition. You know, actually, that, right now they're probably seems to be working well. They're probably actually striving for some social anonymity right now, given all the Occupy <laughs> Wall Street movements everywhere. <laughs> you know, seriously, and um, that was the same trend that really fueled um, Genesis doing well because we launched Genesis 
right about the time of the Lehman um, Brothers collapse and, and the start of, of, of the Great Recession. We're going to use that term frequently, but let's face it, that's what it was. And yeah. that was a time when, um, you know, a lot of people who were kind of serially leasing BMW 7 Series and Mercedes-Benz S-Classes began to think, you know, this is a little socially awkward for me now to be driving such an ostentatious car. I think, I think I'd rather drive something that, you know, represents a, a different a different place um, and a different value set. And and we found a lot of the early Genesis buyers during that period um, were folks like that coming from BMW and uh, and Audi and Mercedes and the like, and just wanted a lower profile car that still had all the stuff that they wanted. You you know what's interesting is is that was done before by a luxury brand. I mean, mm. Bentley did it with in the '60s, of course, with the Princess, and it was not badged Bentley, but it looked like a sort of modified small Bentley, and it had the teak drop down, you know, rear tables on the back, and all leather, and they were they were absolutely stunning, but they were seen as being like the sort of more subdued version of being wealthy from pe- for people that didn't want to have to flaunt their wealth. I mean, it's it's definitely that that kind of economy right now. I mean, do you see the Equus program of selling people cars at their home being able to branch into other Hyundai areas? Like, could it's such you- a great question, Michelle. And um, you know, it's 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 not inexpensive to do, truly. Um, but it is so much less expensive than building, um, you know, a, a 50 or $75 million luxury showroom or, or building, you know, Absolutely. 150 to 200 standalone showrooms that might average $10 million bucks to $20 million a pop. I mean, that money has to be baked into the price of the car, into the margin of the car. There's no other way. It has to, has to be supported by the car. Um, and so our decision was, you know, in the end, no one – I mean, this is the truth, and the auto industry, we all just need to admit it. No one really ever wants to go to a car dealership because everyone has better things to do in their lives. Um, not that car dealers are, are bad places to be, but just that we would rather get our coffee at a Starbucks than we would at a fancy premium car dealership. And we'd rather, you know, if, if you're a golfer, you'd probably rather be golfing at a golf course as opposed to, you know, sitting at, at the putting green at the Lexus store or the BMW store. Those things make going to a car dealership a better experience. But the reality is you don't want to have to go to a car dealership at all. And that was the insight that founded and informed the Equus um, um, uh, your your time, your place, uh, vehicle demonstration drives. But it's just still not phone. cutting out the dealer, which is awesome because it doesn't break franchise and compliance laws. Exactly, yeah. And, and, and we have a great dealer body. We wouldn't want to cut them out, but what they um what they appreciate is that this is a way to bring the car to the consumer at their place of work um or or where they live and in about 25 states the deal can actually be done outside the dealership and in the other half of states the franchise laws actually require that the paperwork and everything actually be signed um on the premises for whatever reason so that's been great and something like 20 to 30 percent of equus buyers took advantage of um that your time your place demonstration drive and we find their satisfaction with the car is is very very high um the other thing and this honestly has been bigger for us is equus at your service which is the program where we we have a free maintenance program but what distinguishes our free maintenance program is we'll come to your house or place of business and get the car leave you a genesis or an equus loaner vehicle so you never really have to go to the car dealership ever if you have any concern with the car if you need the oil change which we'll cover if you maybe hear a squeak and rattle or something that you're not sure of. You make a phone call or you um, you talk to us on the Internet and, and we'll arrange for your car to be picked up and, and taken care of and delivered back to you. 
all washed and clean and ready to go. Um, that came from an insight speaking with BMW owners. BMW owners love their free maintenance programs, I'm, and, and it's one of the, the key drivers of BMW's success over the years. They've done a fantastic job with that program. The issue is BMW install base is now so high. There are so many BMW units in operation, all of them with free maintenance, right, that BMW's service facilities in the morning are places you really don't want to be. And so what ends up being, what started out as a great benefit has become a bit of a hassle. And BMW owners are now increasingly kind of bothered um, by what was a free benefit but is now so difficult to access. Um, and BMW owners in particular seem to really resonate around this idea. Oh, my God, you don't have to go and wait in the service drive at 730 in the morning to get my oil changed. Um, and it's a bit of a revelation for them. We have a question from the chat room. Do you think that Hyundai needs a consistent look for their dealerships? Yes, we do. Um, however, um, we have a slightly different, and I would argue, a more enlightened approach. Um, if you look at a lot of the facility programs around the industry today, many of them, I'm not exaggerating, specify the grout to be used on the showroom floor and in the bathrooms. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary level of detail and specificity. And we don't think that's, we don't think that's the right approach. And, and it, it is, is with many things you do at Hyundai, we're, we're taking a Pareto principle point of view, the 80-20 rule, which says, you know, you can deliver, in many cases, 80% of the benefit of, of some program with just 20% of the cost if you're really smart about it and then you can spend your money on the things that really, really matter. Um, does it matter that the grout is the same at a, at a dealership in Huntsville, Alabama, as a dealership in, in um, Southern California? I mean, and, and would you even necessarily want them to be the same? Maybe the local conditions are so different that it wouldn't make any sense to do that. So what we're doing is, and what we have done with our facilities program, is develop um, a package of, of most visible points in the dealership, the, the fascia, the signage, various aspects within the dealership. And those are becoming requirements that we're, we're um, working with our dealers uh, to roll into over a two- or three-year period. And so with time, our dealerships are going to have a remarkable level of consistency and harmony. Um, but we're going to do it at about 20% of the total cost, Hyundai plus dealership cost, as a lot of our competitors have had to do. And you know what? I think 99.9% .9 of consumers will be absolutely delighted and will not be offended by the fact that the grout is different in the Huntsville, Alabama store uh, compared to the store in San Leandro. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I, I mean, I, as a former franchisee, and not in automotive, by the way, but, um, I, you know, I, I have talked to different sorts of industry franchisees that are like a Baskin-Robbins guy one time who told me, in order to rebrand his store to meet corporate standards, he had to spend something like $150,000. And I mean, for a Baskin Robbins, that's a lot of money. And um, instead of letting him, I mean, there was, you know, no regional concern that maybe his store should look different because it was in Southern California instead of in Texas or in, you know, some other area. Like, they all have to look exactly the same. And these franchisees end up spending a ton of money and Mind you, what most people don't realize, even though they want that homogenous experience walking into any business and wanting it to look the same in New York as it does in Atlanta, is that a lot of times these, these corporate franchisors are making money on the signage 
and the building out of all of those franchisees. And they're small business owners. They're local small business owners that can't afford to make the changes. Yeah. I mean, it's a major issue. Um, And and, and, and the NADA is, I think, doing a great job bringing voice to the dealers on on this issue because some of the requirements are are really over the top. As you say, the investment requirements are are significant. I mean, dealers really – they, they have a lot of their assets um, and equity at risk anyway. And, and when an OEM comes along um, with these big programs, um, it's a huge and significant financial burden. Um, our approach has always been a little bit different. And, and you can say, well, that's, that's an issue because Hyundai dealers across the country, maybe that's where the questioner is coming from, um, have not been the most consistent in, in terms of, of look and feel. It's, it's true, and I accept that. I think it's a fair criticism. Um, but if you look at where we are right now, we've probably flipped uh, four to 500 dealers of our 800-odd dealers uh, into a remarkably consistent um, internal and external appearance. And, and we're going to get the rest of them over the next couple of years. And, That's awesome. You know, I think we're going to do it in a very investment-efficient fashion. Well, we should probably take one last question because I think you do have to go get on a flight pretty soon here. I'm on a plane soon, yeah. It's my <laughs> I actually out. have yeah. one last question then. Okay. Sure thing. Tell, t- what, what are you willing to uh, tell us about the uh, i30 plugin? The i30 plugin. This is Chelsea. Of course. <laughs> um, what do I know about the i30 plugin? I mean, not a lot. I don't even know. Uh, I, I don't know. What have you heard about the i30 plugin? <laughs> you probably know more about it than I do. All right, fair enough. Um, then I, I guess we'll, there's not that much out there about it. It's it's certainly uh, framed as the Prius killer, but nobody knows uh, enough. Yeah, now we we do have um, uh, a U.S. version of the European I-30, which is our compact C-segment car, um, coming to the U.S. in the not-so-different future, not-so-distant future. We've talked about that. Um, it's a replacement for what is currently known as the Elantra Touring. Um, and, um, you know, right now it's, it's a conventional uh, gasoline engine uh, vehicle, but it's going to be a nice um, addition to the Elantra lineup. Along with the, the coupe, we're going to have an Elantra two-door coupe coming um, in the early part of next year. So we'll flesh out the Elantra lineup next year and have a total of three different body styles to choose from. There's going to be a whole lot of metal in the yeah, showroom. Yeah, you're getting the plug. A lot of sheet metal, a lot of sheet metal, yeah. And I wish I had something to say about the, the plug-in stuff, but um, I'm really not sure about that. That's okay. I'll settle for driving the, the Turbo Veloster. There you go. Okay, we, we <laughs> can arrange that. It's very close totally to no what problem. I have now. I, I have an eye on red line now, so it's totally up my alley. Oh, that's perfect. Well, where do you live? I live in L.A. Oh, perfect. We'll 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 arrange an early test drive for you. Oh, there you go. I think we'll have to. Yeah, Orange County yeah. has the fog. <laughs> you got to watch her. She has a heavy foot. I do. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, I'm the only EV person that's known for my right foot. Uh, see, you know, our PR guy Jim Trainer on his uh, he he drove from Orange County to Vegas, and he got nabbed going 96 miles an hour in a Veloster. Oh no. Is that all? Yeah, and the sad thing was the policeman told him because the whole pack of traffic was going that speed, um, and the policeman told Jim that, well, I had to pick one of you. And, no. um, what and color I think was it was the unfortunate. car? It was orange. It was oh, an orange blaster, you know. So he might have just had a little sign on his window saying, you know, arrest me, pick this one. Um, poor Jim was doomed. I'm going to have to give Jim oh. some, some grief about that one. <laughs> give him some grief. I, I, he, he deserves it. One of the cruelest drives I ever was on was um, here in Vegas when we got put in the RSpec Genesis, and we were driving through the Valley of Fire, and it's a state park that has a 
45 to 50 mile an hour speed limit in an R spec. That was hard. I remember that drive, Michelle. That that was tough to keep to the speed limit. <laughs> and I was driving with Scott Burgess, and we were kind of like, "Okay, what do we do? <laughs> like, do yeah. we want to have fun?" <laughs> we uh, that's why we arranged uh, for the racetrack uh, portion at lunch. Remember, Scott Burgess. Yeah. I forgot the name of that racetrack, but there's a fabulous racetrack not too far outside of uh, Vegas. Scott Burgess doesn't drive fast, you know. Come on. It's true. He and I are actually like two little old ladies when we drive together. We just sit there and listen to the radio and like vetch about everybody. Yeah. Did Scott get pulled over on that drive? Didn't he get pulled over though? I thought he did. Scott? Maybe. No, we got lost. <laughs> we got really lost for like an hour. Why am I not surprised? Why am I not surprised? Did it have a nav system? Well, we were listening to the radio. <laughs> Well, we didn't try it. We were we were we were actually utilizing the iPhone adapter, and we were listening to old Phil Hendry radio shows. No, oh, there we go. That's a good excuse for getting lost, I guess. Hmm. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, you guys, this sure. has been a lot of fun for me. Um, I have to go hop on an airplane. Yes. Well, have a safe flight. Thank you, John Kraftcheck, CEO of. Hyundai North America. We everything that happens at SEMA is so much fun, and I I love that you guys had such a, had such a big presence here today. Yeah, thanks. Well, I really appreciate you guys coming by. I appreciate being on the show. It was great fun for me. Love to do it again. Just let me know. Outstanding. We'll see you awesome. in Los Angeles. You betcha. Take care. Bye bye, everybody. Bye bye. We have another guest coming on at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific, who is Margaret Brooks, who um, is from Chevy, and so we're going to have more SEMA talk coming up, but Chelsea and Aaron, hey! We just started, like, this whole, like, recording the thing really quickly, and I didn't even get to say hi, really. Hello. Good to talk Hello. to you again. So how is, I would ask you how, how Las Vegas is, but I, I understand what the number one rule of Las Vegas is, so we're not allowed to ask <laughs> So what did you see at SEMA today that really made you go, hey, look at that? Oh, God, it's so overwhelming. I mean, yeah. the amount of the the amount of stuff. I mean, it is if if you've never been to the Las Vegas Convention Center, let alone SEMA, oh. it's hard to explain how yeah. much space this thing takes up. And it goes on and on and on, and there are just halls after halls. Um Seems to me that Hot Wheels and Matchbox have a very big interest right now in doing some special cars, right? Because they did the Matchbox um, Ford F three fifty, which is really fun. So cool. And then they're giving out like a limited edition fifty six hundred little Matchbox um, trucks. And then they had a Hot Wheels Fiesta, and then they did a Hot Wheels Camaro that they revealed last night that has this incredible sort of like you know, Heineken bottle green, like mirrored finish yeah. on it with the little red lined wheels. and. Well, Brenda took a picture of that thing and posted it on Facebook. And we were commenting that it, I got to admit, it looked like the front right quarter panel didn't quite match the color of the front fascia. Like it was, maybe it was just an angle kind of thing or, but it looked like the two colors weren't the same and it looked kind of cheap. It, it's so, it's so, uh, it's it's one of those paint finishes that's so odd because it is almost mirror, but yeah, it's not that chrome, mirror wrapped stuff. Brenda called it chrome green, basically. 
Yeah. Well, if it doesn't match, we'll just make that one more valuable, actually. Right? <laughs> the mistake cars always are. I, you know, the boys here are huge Hot Wheel fans. So we have mm. thousands of them. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. But they're cool, right? So that that car is actually they're not. It's not going to be a production car. This right. is a SEMA thing that they did with Mattel, and then but they are going production at Mattel. So mm. I'm sure your son can have one. You know. Soon. Well, I'll, um, I'll have to get my hands on one that I can walk over to Mattel for my house. So if I have to go baking, I will. <laughs> so that's kind of, I mean, that's kind of one of the fun things. I think people like seeing that stuff. They're, so I guess the sexy or whatever, the hottest car of the year was once again the Camaro mm-hmm. um, that they announced this morning. Hottest, uh, let's see, hottest 4x4 four four was Wrangler. Yeah, that was SUV, hottest, of the, SUV of the year. That wasn't some magazine. Right. Yeah. Truck is F-150. I mean, they seem kind of like, you know, for SEMA, you'd think they'd be like one particular trim or yeah. one company's trim level or something like that. And then the hottest sport compact was the Fiat 500. Really? And you know it's it there, so there's a lot of Fiat 500s around here that have um, a lot of different tuning kits on them. I mean, there's one in the SRT8 tent, um, but there it, it kind of surprised me a, a little, I think, because there were so many great like Fiestas and you know what actually really shocked me and I forgot to ask Craftcheck about this was there was no accent that I've seen yet. Really? Yeah. Absent from the from the show, huh? Absent, and then where you know Chevy has like so many Sonics right. here. Huh. I don't know why that would be. Maybe they're just maybe they're just putting all the all the effort on Veloster for the moment. That's it the big is Veloster and Coupe, and he actually even mentioned to me today when we were talking about the the two special Genesis Coupes that were here mm-hmm. that they weren't going to be able to use them for very much longer because. The coop's getting a facelift. Right. Yeah, actually, we're supposed to see that, I think, at the L.A. show. Either yeah. LA, or, L.A. or Detroit, we're going to see that, I think. I think it's L.A. Yeah. I'll know next Friday there's a, a Hyundai preview happening here at uh, at the Hyundai Center. Which is kind of funny when you think about it, because at the end of the day, like, do you really care if there's being a facelift? Because this is called the aftermarket parts. Right. That's uh, true, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're still going to have to make aftermarket parts for the previous generation ones too. But I guess it's it will seem. People are going to buy them used and customize them for themselves. And... Yeah. Well, SEMA has really become almost a, another show in the in the pantheon of auto shows, though. I mean, it's with uh, the uh, the attention the automakers have given it in just the last like four or five years. You know, I would it would actually make sense almost for for SEMA to sort of integrate a little bit with CES now because mm-hmm. I mean this. Compared to what it was two, three years ago, where it just felt like people were showing up because they got a trip to Vegas and, you know, they came from Minneapolis because they had a little aftermarket store and they weren't selling anything because no one was selling anything in those days. Yeah. This one actually feels a little bit different and it's popping. I mean, it's there's a lot going on. Um, Although I can't well, imagine if you look having... At the, if you look at the presence of cars at CES this last year, it, yeah. they are integrating. Yeah, well, they've had true. they've had Malali was you know keynote speaker for the last two years and this year it's it's uh, oh who was it uh, Daimler Zetcha. Yeah, well and and just the amount of real estate that yeah was was pretty true. impressive. 
Yeah. Although I couldn't imagine having both SEMA and CES at the same time. <laughs> oh, well, and then there's always the porn convention that weekend. So. Well, then you kind of have you kind of have that going on at SEMA too, though, though, from what I understand. <laughs> well, it's a lot of shared talent. Absolutely. Various booth babes and spokesmodels and things. Yes. Yeah, it it's uh it's well, you know what there's actually I think there's less booth babes. Really? Um I, I think there are. I will say this, I was amazed at the number of people I met today from Australia, a, a lot of Australians, a lot from Korea, a lot from Thailand, a lot from China, um a a ton of South Americans, Venezuela, Brazil, um People well, from Mexico, Monterey, Mexico. That'd be manufacturing. It's but the thing is for for all these these overseas folks, it's cheap for them to come here right now because the dollar is trading so low. So True. they True. can justify the the international travel a lot easier than say if we than us going to Frankfurt. <laughs> Hi, Michelle. This oh, is hey. Margaret. There we are. Hey, Margaret. I am on. It is great. I to just have momentarily you. lost you. <laughs> so, um, everyone, this is Margaret Brooks, and she is the product and pricing director for Chevrolet Small Cars, who very, um, I think, it was very funny when you told me, that also includes Camaro, because you get to have a little fun every so often. Absolutely. I mean, small is all relative, and um, that's how we define it here at uh, Chevy. It's everything from Spark through Cruise and Volt, all the way up to Camaro. So a pretty broad array of products. Well, congratulations on Cruise doing so well this year. It's uh, it's been the top selling compact car on the segment for uh, for 2010, basically, or 2011. It's 2011 now, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> 20, <laughs> Thank you. It's been a, it's really been a good year for us, and and really, it's all about getting the product right. If we make a great product that customers love, really, the rest takes care of itself. So how is there's been some some question about the whole Chevy runs deep campaign. How is it how is it going for you? Well, you know, we're very committed to the campaign and you know, when you look at the results for the Chevrolet business, really they speak for themselves. You know, we've had 14 months um of continuous retail improvement in our retail volume and you know, that only happens because our message is getting out to the customer. Mm. How hard is it to do a kind of uh, basically to build on the patriotic image of Chevrolet and yet try and grab some of the coastal buyers, which don't always necessarily respond to the whole patriotic American image thing? How do you juggle that that kind of, of, of message? Well, you know, Chevrolet's um, approach to going to market really isn't about being patriotic, but it is about tapping into the fact that, you know, Chevrolet is a brand that, um, you know, people have very, very positive and deep emotional feelings about. And, you know, almost everybody, um, you know, probably over the age of 20, has somewhere in their past where they have some memory of Chevrolet, whether, you know, it's, it's a vehicle that their parents had or a relative had. So that's really what the brand is about. It's really about recognizing that, you know, the values of Chevy really connect with the values of people in the country. 
Um, you know, it's a brand that people can feel proud of. It's a brand that's, that's very honest. It's down to earth. And, you know, it's a brand that, you know, it's, it's attainable to everybody with a product that people can really be proud to own. I will admit, I uh, growing up, did 10 years in the very way back of a Chevrolet Caprice classic wagon, <laughs> facing the wrong way, driving everywhere in that very far third row seat facing backwards. <laughs> so it's part of, part of my history as well. <laughs> and, and I think every family, you know, has that history. Indeed. Well, you know, when I know that uh, Margaret actually rode in the Sonic with me when I was driving it during the event. And uh, one of the things we were talking about was their new approach to the millennials. And, Margaret, we've had uh, – I think I told you this during our drive. Um, we've had a long discussion on Open Line off and on about – the fact that, you know, some millennials don't drive, some millennials are overwhelmed by the price of new cars. And now with the the spark in the Sonic, you're looking at a demographic that could actually buy new. And you have a lot of really good ideas about how your dealerships are going to have to start talking to those millennials because they do shop differently, right? Absolutely, they shop different, you know, and, and, you know, really, we've been in the midst of a a small car renaissance here at Chevrolet. It started a year ago with the cruise. Um, You know, this year we just launched Sonic, and, you know, then we'll be bringing out the Spark Mini Car um, in about mid-2012. And one of the things we've realized is that in order to sell to younger buyers, we really do need to change everything about how we do business. Uh, We put a lot of emphasis on training our dealers, not just to understand the product, but actually to understand the customer. And in fact, we've worked with MTV to develop some training that um, all of our dealer sales consultants are going through that really help them understand this target market a little bit better. So that, you know, when the younger customer comes in the door, um, you know, the the dealer realizes you talk to them. And, you know, you don't talk to their parents. You don't talk to the friend that's with them. It's them. It's a purchase decision. It's it's really about treating that customer with with respect. Um, We've also uh, done some training on how you actually get these younger customers financed. Um, you know, one of the challenges that our dealers have reported to us is, you know, they're in. They really want to adjust their businesses to bring in these younger customers. But they said, you know, getting somebody financed who doesn't have a lot of credit history is difficult. So we've worked with our partner, GM Financial, and we developed some training on when these customers come in who don't have credit history, how you actually structure that financial transaction so that when a bank looks at it, it's a lot easier to get it approved. So those have been some adjustments we've made in our business. You know, and and one of the things that it's important for our dealers to get on board with these customers is when you think about this customer, they're worth about a half a million dollars to a dealer if the dealer can get them while they're young and really earn their trust and their loyalty and their future business. 
Yeah, there's a, there's about seven cars, I think, on average that people buy in their lifetime. And if they can hook them in early, then uh, they can they can keep that chain going to the next one and the next one and the next one. It's a lot it's a lot cheaper to re- yeah it's a lot cheaper to retain that customer actually than it is for the automaker to actually go out and try and steal them away from another brand as well. Absolutely. So our strategy has really been about let's create products that are going to appeal to younger customers. Let's prepare our dealerships to understand those customers and to be able to respond to their unique needs. And then, obviously, in our own marketing and communications, to speak to them in a voice that, you know, feels like we're uniquely talking to that customer group. And then, of course, what we're doing here at SEMA, how our new Chevrolet products are a great canvas for personalization. That's another way of further attracting these younger customers because we know, you know, being able to customize is, is important to them. And there were there. How many Sonics and Camaros are there on the SEMA show floor overall? Do you know? Well, we actually have twenty Sonics that are on the the show floor, and I believe we had uh, ten cruisers between some GM cars and partner cars, and then Camaro. Um, I don't think anybody can even count how many Camaros we had here. Uh, we did four of our own, plus we provided. Um, a large number of partner cars, and then there were an amazing number of companies that without any participation from Chevy on their own, you know, went off and did Camaros, and and the results really were fantastic. I I don't think you could go very far, um, you know, walking from display to display without stumbling upon, you know, more Camaros. So, you know, it, it really has been pervasive because, again, it's a car that so many um, builders just really love to work with. Got a performance yeah. question. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Michelle. Oh, I was just going to make the comment that it was kind of funny. I went outside today and was waiting for a friend to show up outside of the South Hall where registration is. And there's a cruise with another grouping of cars all by Giovanna that does aftermarket wheels and, you know, packages and all that. They market through the dealers, and there's a cruise out there right behind a supercharged Range Rover. And these two old guys sat down on the bench next to me, and they were like, one of them goes, what is that thing? And he goes, it's a Chevy. And he goes, but look at the lines. (laughs) And it was so funny because, you know, in some ways, I see the cruise as, like, just being, like, it's just part of my vernacular now. I don't see it as being anything out, you know, different. But these guys, like, they never seen one looking like that and they were so excited about it it was really cute <laughs> and, and they're still getting the word out obviously because Chevy's a brand that you know really is in the middle of a transformation and particularly with small cars so you know it, it takes time for people's perceptions to catch up with the reality of the products we offer today so one thing we haven't seen much of recently is any new SS models coming from Chevrolet. Is there uh, are there any possibility we might be seeing any SS models of these small cars coming? Well, you know, we haven't had anything that we've announced to date. Right. Um, you know, but certainly um, having brands that, you know, appeal to enthusiasts, obviously that's always been part of Chevy's DNA. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know, we're gonna always want to stoke that passion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly, I think if you went through 
our stand, you know, you could see with, um, you know, the Camaros, with Sonic, with Cruise, you know, that's where our, our sites are focused is, you know, really on creating cars that enthusiasts will love and that enthusiasts can create themselves. Mm. Chelsea, I guess, in the chat room is voting for a Volt SS. But, uh, Absolutely. <laughs> well, and Tony is already well aware. We'll strap some super capacitors to the back of it. When you think about the importance of having cars that are fuel efficient, I think Sonic is a great example of how you can have a car that's both fun to drive and fuel efficient all at the same time. You know, with the 1.4 liter turbo, Sonic gets 40 miles a gallon on the highway. And yet at the same time, it's this great looking fun car that can be customized, has great riding handling. You know, and again, we think that that's, that's a formula that is really, um, you know, right for what today's customers would like to have. Going forward, Chevrolet is really becoming the global brand for for General Motors. We're seeing a lot more international influence in the brand. Even domestically, we're seeing some of the international influence. Are we going to see Chevrolet brand changing as it goes forward, as it becomes more of a global brand? I mean, here in the U.S., will we see some some maybe some different influences or different uh, different products that we might not otherwise have seen? Well, I think one of the great things about being a global brand is that international influences, you know, really can help shape the brand. Um, You know, having lived overseas myself, one of the things that um, was really interesting to me is how the very essence of the Chevrolet brand kind of hits a chord no matter where you live in the world. There's something about the, the Chevrolet brand and the fact that, you know, it's attainable to people that really resonates. And the fact that, you know, Chevrolet, you know, really stands for many of those great American values, kind of a sense of innovation. And, you know, the fact that anybody can be successful, um, you know, in a country like America. And um, those values resonate around the world. Mm-hmm. And another thing that's great about being a, an international brand is, you know, we have engineering centers around the world. And it is just amazing how talented people are everywhere. And just like in America, when you put together a melting pot of people, uh, you get ideas that are maybe more powerful than any culture by itself might come up with. I think we have the ability to tap into that in how we develop our products. And I think when you look at cars like Cruise and Sonic, mm-hmm. the new Malibu even, those are the product of sort of that metamorphosis of ideas from around the world. Mm. It's really quite powerful what it can do for a brand. Do you work very closely with a lot of the international uh, international operatives with General Motors? Yeah, I mean, my role my role is to basically bring the voice of the customer into the product development process, ah. and so I get to work with you know engineering and design teams from all over the world. As part of that, and, and it's it's really um, a great experience, and it, it's so interesting to see how um, we can share ideas and get better ideas as a result of that. Excellent, good stuff. 
Wow. And so we were talking today actually um, about the entire idea of how the, the 40 miles per hour again, which keeps coming up. Why did, Why is that number so important? Did well, you say 40 miles per hour? You know, for, for, for 40 miles per gallon, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. We all like numbers, obviously, that that round up. Um, you know, so ending in a zero is usually a good thing because it, it signifies a new threshold. And, you know, if you went back not too many years, really you could count on, you know, a hand, the number of vehicles that achieved 30 miles a gallon. 40 is the new 30. It's, it's the threshold you really want to target in order to um, – you know, really be in that club of, you know, vehicles that really are very, very fuel efficient. And certainly cruises there with the eco model that gets an amazing 42 miles a gallon, you know, with a car that is basically about $20,000. Sonic, it's it's the same story. Um, you know, 40 is sort of that thing that really uh, gets the attention of customers and and where Sonic really comes into play is it's with a car that really is fun to drive um you know obviously put the same engine that we use in the cruise in a vehicle that's about 300 pounds lighter and you know you just get this very very lively possible feel to the car and it's tuned by you know members of our engineering team who've actually worked on the Corvette team so when they bring that, that passion for cars that they had on, you know, really the ultimate enthusiast vehicle, and now they're bringing it to one of the, you know, smallest members of the family, um, you put together a pretty important combination that, you know, gets you a vehicle that is fuel efficient, it's affordable, but along with it, very importantly, it's fun. With the uh, a lot of you talked a little bit about the customization possibilities, and I know that GM's put a lot of effort into the performance parts and a lot of the aftermarket parts to really kind of, for one thing, boost some dealer revenue. Uh, how how deep will the modification possibilities go with some of the, the Chevy small cars? I mean, are we talking about really just basically you know, stickers and a couple body kits, or, or are we looking at really some deeper things like suspension changes or or even engine engine power upgrades? Well, um, you know, about, let's see, I guess it was at the New York Auto Show this year. Uh, we actually introduced a Sonic Z-Spec. And mm-hmm. Z-Spec was a concept we showed last year at SEMA. Um, we then announced at the New York Auto Show a, a Sonic Z-Spec and said, you know what, these parts we're going to have available this calendar year. We're on track with a number of parts, and it's really just the beginning. But you're going to, you know, if you looked on the show floor today, we had three Sonic Z-Specs. We had a Cruise Z-Spec. And you're going to see that those parts are available for customers to buy, you know, really in the next, you know, six to nine months. Um, We're pretty committed to it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have started a a branded parts line to be used on our small car portfolio. And I think you're going to see that as time goes on, it's going to be a really rich idea that we're going to be able to grow, and certainly it's going to go beyond, a, a, you know, performance or um, appearance parts. Mm-hmm. And you know, with our commitment to performance parts for you know within GM, I think you'll see that over time that's going to be a growth area even with Z-Spec. Now Z-Spec but, isn't you know, 
Z-Spec's not replacing SS for some of the small cars, is it? Absolutely. We would not replace, you know, trim levels that hmm. have been, you know, near and dear to our hearts <laughs> like SS and RS. Z-Spec is really intended to be a branded parts line. Ah, okay. And, you know, we've, we realize there's different kinds of customers. There's customers who want to get that special sport model, and they want to basically buy it stock from the factory. And then there are customers who want to create the car themselves, and, you know, maybe they'll, they'll buy some of those parts when they buy the vehicle and then add on later. Or, you know, one of the things that happens often in the aftermarket is it's not until a car becomes, you know, goes into the secondary market as a used car that it really gets customized hmm. uh, because that's when it becomes more affordable for younger buyers. And, you know, some customers have been known to spend as much on their accessories as they did on the car themselves. That's something that you were saying, Michelle, what you'd seen at SEMA today was you're curious why, the, why people didn't have more of the older vehicles there with the customized parts. Well, there are a lot of old older vehicles here with it, but, I mean, it's it, just with even, like, a um, but there are older classics, right? right it's not right. like an, an a year or two old car. Um, it, they're definitely like still focusing on older classics or just the absolutely brand new. And you know, M Margaret's talking about just the amount of accessories you can put on. I have to yeah. say, like Ricky Carmichael's um, SEMA car that he did of the Sonic uh, was probably like one of the most realistic um, SEMA cars I've seen in a long time. Because it was, you know, Ricky's, he's a driver, he's an outdoor guy, he likes, you know, mountain biking, he likes snowboarding, and he had his Thule racks on there with his mountain bike and his snowboard and, you know, all the little parts that made the car look nicer to him, which is, I could entirely see somebody investing in a Sonic and then adding on all of that stuff eventually. Mm-hmm. It was it yeah, was kind of fun. I mean, you know, the one with the roll cage inside. I don't I <laughs> I don't see too many kids pulling the you know the interior out and cutting it up and putting a roll cage in. But I mean, customers will do all kinds of things. But yeah, we really like uh, the Ricky Carmichael concept. I, you know, it it really it's a great expression of Ricky, and you know he was very much a driving force in you know making the choices so that the car did express him. But, yeah, it absolutely, you know, he had the idea that he wanted a car that would really be what he uses, you know, kind of for his weekend runabout to, to kind of, you know, represent his lifestyle. And I think it really is a lifestyle that fits many people of his generation. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely read that way. I mean, it came came off as being an absolutely sincere I mean as did Dale Earnhardt Jr. by the way did a, a 70s Chevelle SS conversion um, that also read as completely sincere you know it wasn't like he just got given a car and told to go make it pretty right he, it really spoke to his tradition with the brand and, and um, they were both really nice yeah, absolutely. You know, that very much, um, you know, in both cases, both working with, with Dale and with Ricky, it was a self-expression. And, and that's important. There's got to be some authenticity. And that's part of what Chevy is. It's an authentic brand. And, you know, 
the, the partners we work with share that value of authenticity. You know, and when you think about some of the other FEMA uh, vehicles that we showed, I think a number of them were vehicles, you know, real people can see themselves in. Um, you know, the, the Sonic that DSOI wear did for us in Diamond White, the beautiful car that, again, I think it's tasteful, it's elegant, and yet it's a self-expression that very easily, you know, a young customer could go out and do themselves. Um, the Sonic Dust or the Cruise Dust would also be vehicles that, that fit that same category. Or even, you know, the, the Sonic Respects that we showed, um, you know, again, very, very much, you know, something that a customer could go out, they could buy those parts, put it on the car, and, you know, it is something that fits their real life, and it's easy to drive, and the ground clearances excuse me, mm-hmm. are still sufficient that you can take it anywhere. Yeah. And that's Absolutely. one of the things team is important for, it's to show that range. Mm-hmm. Some people really do want to do something that's a little more outrageous. But there are also a lot of people, they want to customize, they want to make their own statement, but, you know, they want to do it in a way that works and, and can be, lets them have a car that can be their everyday driver. Indeed. Well, it's neat to see some of the stuff that's coming out from, from a lot of the small cars, and uh, especially at Chevrolet. Absolutely. Well, well, and Margaret, you actually, I mean, you've done a, a couple of tours with, with Chevy, of course, and been with GM for a while. You actually got to be at the at the studio in China for a bit, didn't you? I did. I uh, had the opportunity to work for GM China uh, for three and a half years in our sales service and marketing organization. And it, it really was one of those life-changing opportunities um, that really lets you see the business differently. And it helps me think about brands differently, um, you know, and, and how you take care of your customers differently. You know, and in my current role as a product, you know, marketing director, you know, all the programs we do, we sell them around the world. And and one of the things that perspective does for you, uh, number one, because we're developing our vehicles uh, globally, it helps you interface better in a world, in a, in a product development system that's global, and really think about language differences or the fact that, you know, even just the schedules that people keep, um, you know, time of day, it, it's something you have to work around. And, and there's an empathy you develop. But it also, you know, when I think about the Chevy brand and, and what it stands for in China, you know, it, here we're celebrating our 100th birthday this week, but in China, Chevrolet is a very young brand, you know, really only about five years old. Um, and yet the meaning behind that brand is really the same. And... um you know, so, again, it, there's this appreciation that we get for it. Or, you know, when I think about the, the trade-offs we have to make in the product development community, um, I, I can be as much of an advocate for making sure we do the right thing to support the brands in growing markets 
as I am an advocate for, um, you know, our customers here in North America. Because sometimes when you have that appreciation, you can see that middle ground that says, if we make choice, instead of choosing A versus B, we go to a new, a different choice, choice C, that might be a way of getting just a better overall result to help make Chevy Spurlerville. That's really awesome. <clears throat> I mean, I think I I just remember you telling me about that, and it just it makes so much sense that that you know it's kind of like a tour of duty, right? And and helping you to sort of understand the entire. I mean, you can't go global unless everyone sort of has works globally, right? Absolutely, and and we all need that empathy. And you know, there's nothing like boots on the ground to to learn firsthand what's it like. Um. You know, so again, it, it's we we've got a large number of people in our leadership, you know, positions who've had that experience, and I think we have an important coaching and counseling role um, to play to help others understand the experience. And also, it's important to be able to be advocates, particularly if you know some of our markets aren't able to to be present to represent our you know themselves to make sure that there's other people who can hear a discussion and say, you know, I heard what you just said, but you know what? That might not be right for China, or here's what I think they might be meaning when somebody's trying to interpret um, a requirement for another part of the world that maybe they don't understand. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. I know this yes. has been like a hugely long 24 hours for you, you guys, but GM, I mean, you guys did so much from Chevy. I mean, it's been, it, this is a great show, actually. I have to say, it's it's great to see you guys having so much presence at SEMA this year. It feels different this year, actually. Don't you think it feels different? I think it does. You know, I, I think certainly the show overall feels different. You know, for us at Chevy, this is really uh, an important milestone. Obviously, you know, with, you know, this week really being the celebration of our, our centennial, um, you know, we really wanted to use the show here to really signify what is Chevy going to look like in the next hundred years. Um, and, and for us, it's a very bright and positive future. And, you know, when when you're 100 years old, you, you have to constantly be reinventing yourself and staying progressive and relevant. And, you know, we wanted this to be the best theme of show we've ever had. And uh, I think we did what we set out to do. You know what? I actually, we got one question from the chat room. Um, and I think this one's, we didn't really talk a lot about this spark, but I think this one will kind of sum this one up. Are there any plans to apply the Z-Spec concept to the upcoming Spark? Yeah, Z-Spec is intended to be uh, really a, a, a perform, you know, a parts brand for our entire small car portfolio. The core of it will be Cruise, Sonic, and Spark. Um, you know, and we've had thoughts of even, you know, maybe we do extend it to some of our other brands like Bolt. Uh, but Spark very much will be is part of our thinking here. Fun. I can't, I can't wait to see the spark, like, and get in it and have fun in it. I think it'll be, and, and the fact that it's also going to be electric, amazing. Yeah, that, that's that's really, I think, going to be a great opportunity. And the car just lends itself so well to, you know, being a, a great 
you know, electric vehicle that, you know, people can use in urban environments. It's sized right. You know, I, I think it's really going to um, get people to think different once again about Chevy and, you know, our role in, in the small car market. Well, that's probably going to be the least expensive electric car in production, right? Well, you know, we haven't announced pricing yet. You know, there's an opportunity the, yeah. to have a car, you know, that's electric and affordable. Yeah, well, we certainly have our fingers crossed. Yes. I hope so. I hope so. I can't wait. Very exciting. Well, Great. Margaret, Margaret Brooks, thank you so much. We appreciate you, um, you taking the time to do this, and um, you're welcome on any time. It's always yes, interesting to hear about the Chevy stuff. Thanks. It's, it's been fun. Thank you much. Like this show? There's a whole lot more where this came from. Just join us on the first Tuesday of every month between 8 p.m. and 12 a.m. Eastern Time and dial 1712-432-0900. And pen 911633. Get even more info about this and many other automotive programs at autoline.tv. Follow me, Michelle Naranjo, at twitter.com slash missmotormouth or Chelsea Sexton at twitter.com slash evchels. Until next time, happy motoring! Please hang up now. If you need assistance, dial your operator. This is a recording.